Hello everyone. I don't know if you know, but there are 25 times recorded in the gospel where Jesus prayed. Now these are the ones recorded. Do you think Jesus embodied the scripture, pray without ceasing? Absolutely he did. You know, when I think of prayer, I think of different groups. They come to my mind. I think of the power prayer people. Now, these are the individuals who have a connection to God. Their prayers have power, and we know it. So these are the ones we call when we need a prayer warrior. Someone on our side, someone to go to battle for us, to enter the throne room of God, to fall at his feet on our behalf. Amid uncertainty and difficulty, we turn to these godly individuals. These are, there are others. There are the comfort prayer people. When one needs to be uplifted, one needs to be encouraged, when one needs comforted, these are the individuals we turn to. Yeah, they bring us immediate comfort in our stress and in our worry. I mean, these prayers, they offer, they offer a point of reference, a point of connection to our souls. And we just love listening to the prayers, and we always feel better after being in their presence. And then there are the required prayer people. We pray because we're told to pray. We often feel a sense of distance. Our prayers are not reaching to their intended destination. So, but, but we continue to pray. We feel like our prayers are not effective, but we pray. And we hope that one day our prayers can be even more effective. And last, we have the confused prayer people. Yeah, we don't really know what to pray for, nor do we have a strong idea as to how to connect to God. We offer up words, and even those feel confusing and odd. We ask, but do not receive. We seek, but do not find. We knock, but there's no answer. And so, we remain confused and befuddled when approaching God in prayer. Now, I, I want us to read our text in Matthew, but before I do, before I do, I, 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 want to, I want to state again, which I've done many times, exactly what Jesus is laying out in this sermon. He's laying out the new kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount, the way in which we are to live and act and be in his kingdom. And brothers and sisters, prayer is a significant work in our relationship with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, our prayers to God, that oneness, play a central role in building our relationships with him. Prayer is our connection to the way we are to converse minute by minute, hour by hour, and day by day to, to that power from on high. Okay, so listen to these words from Matthew. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, I would venture at one time or another, most of us have struggled in prayer. Our Father, 
loves to hear from us. He wants to hear our struggles, our hurts, our complaints. He wants to hear about our needs and our desires. He wants to know what's going on with us. He wants us to thank him, to call out to him, and he wants our prayer to be praised to him. He wants to hear about our struggles. If we have a difficult time forgiving others, he wants to hear that. He wants to hear our confessions. And in all this, our God desires to give us good gifts. But often our prayers are one-sided with request after request. We ask and we ask, and we often wonder, why is God not listening? This verse from James may serve as a clue. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Our prayers are often centered on our needs, our wants, our desires to fulfill the pleasures of our life, the intent of our hearts, right? And we know this to be true because most of us do it. We desire ease over difficulty. We desire wants over sacrifice. We desire security over the unknown. We desire clemency over confession. And Jesus desires our allegiance over half-heartedness. He desires our total devotion. And our Heavenly Father knows where our desires lie. He knows the true intent of our hearts. And although our spoken words may utter the correct phrases, our hearts are laid bare before Him. Now, I want to jump to my favorite letter, a letter written by Paul to the churches in and near Ephesus. When we, when I and Montclair, how to pray for others, this is a place I turn to for guidance. So how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Okay, so we ask, we seek, we knock. The clues as to what our request should include, those can be found in the contents of the prayer by the Apostle Paul. And that's why I'm going to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. Here we go. For this reason, for all the reasons listed above this in, in verses 3 through 14, and we don't have time to get into that, but for this reason, read it, because, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. You know, it's interesting here because Paul is beseeching God on behalf of the Ephesian church, not because things are going bad, but because things are going so well. The faith in Jesus Christ, their faith is strong, meaning Jesus is so central to their faith walk. They continually cling to him in all situations. Their allegiance is connected to how they live their lives daily. And this news reached back to a prison where Paul was being held, and he is ecstatic. These brethren also have a love toward all the saints. They are unified body, and they are acting upon the well-being of others before their own well-being. And Paul lifts them in prayer. And this is profound. You know, when we think about prayer in the New Testament, we usually think in terms of being in prayer constantly for the struggles and the groanings of the saints. But that's not what this is here. See, Paul does not quit 
praying for the good taking place in Ephesus. Now look at verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul is giving us insight, an example into our potential prayers. Now, our prayer list at Lake Homa is multiplied by individuals who are going through struggles. Something bad or unusual has happened in their lives, and we're reaching out to God on their behalf in prayer. And and listen, I, I want to encourage all of you to pray for those on our prayer list, those who are ill, those who are sick. Our brothers and sisters need our prayers when bad things are happening. But Paul hears of the Ephesians, their allegiance, their faith, and their love for one another, and he will not cease praying. And we may ask, why, well, why do we need to pray for them? Everything is going well. Exactly. They're doing great. They're doing great. And this is the exact reason we need to be praying. I ask God, I seek him. I knock on God's door for these saints who are doing well. Why did Paul do that? Okay, every summer camp, my uncle and I directed, we had a bonfire. It usually occurred on Thursday evening. Now, that was the night before everybody went home, and so, you know, we had that big devotional. We would build a fire. Our goal was to have a fire under control. Now, that didn't always happen. (laughs) One summer, we almost lost the whole mountain. The winds whipped up, and we were in trouble. It took all of us working together to bring the fire under control. So let's just think of prayer as fire. When the fire in our life is under control, burning good, and staying in its appropriate boundaries, boundaries, life is good. But often we let our fire go out. We forget to feed the fire and take care of the fire. We lose the warmth and the power which the fire produces, and our prayer life suffers, right? Okay, now on the other hand, when life turns one's world upside down, the fire rages out of control. We are constantly in emergency prayer mode before the Father. And see, Paul is, Paul is reminding us the time to ask, the time to seek, the time to knock is not just when things are going bad, but when things are going well, when everything is still under control. There are some of you right now, though, who are going through some very difficult times. You're on your knees in prayer. There are others whose lives are going well. And you need to be on your knees in prayer as well, thanking the Father for these blessings in your life. No matter what situation, we are to continually ask, seek, and knock in all circumstances, both bad and good. Do you know the next shortest scripture to Jesus wept? I've already said it. The next shortest verse in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. So when you think about your prayer life and how one is supposed to pray for others, take this prayer, Paul, and use it as your guide. In good times, pray. In bad times, pray. So Paul continues, and he says, I keep asking, I keep praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. 
See, it's easy to see what Paul is praying for here on behalf of the Ephesians. He is praying for the Spirit of God to be released so wisdom and revelation can be obtained to know Jesus better, deeper, a fuller understanding of the appreciation of Jesus Christ in their lives. Paul desires their hearts to be filled up with the light of Jesus Christ. But, 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 but also, look, look, look what he's not praying for. Look what he's not praying for. He's not praying for their conditions. He's not praying for their tragedies or their illnesses or even their job loss. He's not praying for their circumstances. He prays for something else. Wisdom and revelation so they can grow closer to Jesus, to know him better. A new quality of insight so one can weather the storms of life. Enlightenment, the Spirit of God being with us, near us in all circumstances. Again, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So this should bring us clarity in how we're to pray our requests before him. When the storms of life come knocking at our door, we're to absolutely pray for our circumstances. But, but also we're to pray for growth to happen in us, wisdom and insight. This is the time for us to lean into the Father. We pray the Spirit will give us this wisdom and insight that will draw us closer to the Father. So, we seek Him. We keep knocking on the door of God's sovereignty to enlighten our lives. And, and, and just like the widow in Luke 18 who pestered and pestered the unjust judge to give her what she wanted and needed, we too pester the Father for understanding and for insight. Brothers and sisters, our circumstances may not change, but having a depth of understanding in our eyes and our hearts enlightened begins a new journey in trusting Jesus, a road we may never have taken before. And remember, he's by our side walking with us every step of the way. And it becomes this incredible moment of spiritual growth. And this is hard. It's demanding. And it goes against the grain of our culture, our fleshly nature. I mean, come on, we want what we want. We want it now. We want everything fixed just like that. Everything in its proper place, everything back to copacetic. But often it doesn't go back to the satisfying life we had before. And our faith is tested. And there are three realizations for which we need to pray. Three specific insights Paul implores us to use as a model in our prayers. As we're asking, seeking, and knocking for ourselves and for others. So I'd love to give you these three. Okay, so here's number one. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may, here's number one, know the hope to which you have been called. Know the hope to which he has called you. Paul is praying that we know the hope to which he has called us. 
Deb and I were worshiping together. It was January 24th service. And we were at home. We were singing. We were engaged in the service. And Jared Homer delivered the Lord's Supper comments. It, it was very good. And it began a long discussion on the word hope. We actually stopped the video. Jared spoke about how hope is not assurance. We're assured of our salvation in Christ. And he compared hope to fishing. In speaking of our salvation, Jared said, there is no hoping here. No, maybe I'll catch one. Maybe I won't. He went on. When one goes fishing, they hope, they wish to catch a fish. But we're assured of our salvation in Jesus Christ. God is going to take care of us. This was the message of the Lord's Supper talk. <laughs> and it was very good. Yet, we also know there's a doctrine of hope in Scripture. And Paul is encouraging us to know the hope to which we are called. That's not a wish there. See, here's a, here's the struggle we're having, okay? Our English definition of the word hope has been diluted from its original intent. When you ask Siri, just pull out your phone, the definition of hope, you get the definition of feeling of expectation, a desire for a certain thing to happen. It's a wish. This is exactly how Jared used the word hope, just like we always do. Just like going fishing. I wish to catch a fish. I hope to catch it. I have a feeling. I have a desire to catch a fish. I hope I can be saved. Our English word has been diluted. Because, because in that same Siri response, she gives the archaic definition. Hope is a feeling of trust. And when you dig into the original word in the Greek, elipizo, hope is to have trust or confidence in someone, especially as regards to the future. Now, now we can read this scripture with new eyes. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope that we can have confidence, that in which we trust, that in which God has called us. This is our hope, and we can have confidence in that. We pray in confidence of the future. We trust God with our future. We are to come to know Jesus Christ, a trusting and confident hope in him. Brothers and sisters, we often place our hope in a world we can see, that which we can touch, that which we can take hold of now. See, our world promises all the assurance of hope, but in this world, there's no hope at all. We surround ourselves with a world that offers us pleasures and false assurances, the things which aren't seen, which are seen. But our hope, our assurance is in Jesus Christ and is not in this world. Those things that are unseen, we are to pray, to ask, to seek, to know this hope as defined in Scripture to that which he, Jesus, has called us and assuring and expecting hope. Our prayers must move toward a knowledge and understanding of this hope, this confidence we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Listen, listen to these words from the Apostle John. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is what Jared was speaking about. 
This is a confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask for. So we pray with confidence in this hope to which he has called us, a trusting and confident hope of something in the future, knowing our circumstances, knowing that our circumstances do not determine the outcome of our lives. God is making all things new. And so we ask, we seek, we pray to know the hope, the assurance, the confidence we have in Jesus Christ. And let's look at the second item to use as a model in our prayers as we're asking and seeking and knocking. Paul says, I want you that you may know, pray that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, this is the language of inheritance is borrowed from the Old Testament in which God chose a people of his own possession. He called them his treasured possession in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And in these first 14 verses of Ephesians, Paul is reminding us of who we are. I, I love this. We're saints. We're blessed. We are faithful. We are children. We are holy. We're blameless. We're his sons. We've been forgiven. We've been redeemed. We've been loved. We've been adopted to receive an inheritance. And like the children of Israel, we are a people of God's possession. This is how God sees us now. Now, brothers and sisters, many of, many of us have this image of God not liking us. He sees our faults and all the mistakes. Surely God does not like me unless I am perfect. So we live in this constant fear that God is a cosmic sheriff out to get anyone who makes a mistake. But Paul reminds us, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, continual forgiveness. Oh, Oh, that all of us would see ourselves through the God's eyes, his steadfast love, his mercy, his grace is given to us now. We are his children, and he loves us. We too often beat ourselves up. We agonize over our faults instead of living in this love and mercy and grace. We are God's children now. And brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen. We occupy, this is so good, we occupy a seat in the throne room with God right now, with Christ right now. That's chapter 2, verse 6. This inheritance is ours now. He has given us the riches of his love. He has poured out upon us his amazing grace as a father seeks to give good gifts to his children. We therefore ask, seek, and knock with new eyes, eyes that have been enlightened to understand his forgiveness and his amazing grace, his overwhelming love toward us who believe. Therefore, we live differently. When our eyes have been enlightened, we live to please our Father because we are his treasured possession. We are therefore walking in the light as he is in the light. And then we have fellowship with one another and his blood is always cleansing us from all sins. Okay, so number two, we pray to see ourselves as our Father sees us. Okay, this is, this is last. We ask, we seek, we knock for life-sustaining power. 
pray that you may know the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. God's might, his resurrection power, has the ability to move us from death to life, from brokenness to wholeness, from addiction to sobriety, from broken relationships to healthy relationships. God has the power to reverse the death moments in our lives. In Christ, our present state of life does not determine the meaning of our lives. Let me say that again. In Christ, our present state of life does not determine the meaning of our lives. Now, let me continue with Paul in Ephesians. Here he goes. Pray that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come you know when we think of God the almighty the creator of heaven and earth can, can you even fathom our Father's power? <laughs> no, I can't. We can't even come close to imagining the limitless power which resides in God. When I think of power in today's terms, it's mostly negative. I mean, I think of the atomic bomb. I think of ruthless and power-hungry leaders of our world, both past and present. I think of powerful people who will stop at nothing to get what they desire and crush anyone who gets in their way. You see, power is often used as something that is negative. But this type of power, in verses 20 and 21, that resides in God and His Son, is now available to us who believe, to you. It's true. And brothers and sisters, this power is available when we ask, when we seek, when we knock. The, that power that raised Jesus from the dead has the power to take our dead, sinful, and lifeless spirit and body and create that which is new. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life because of righteousness, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Some of you right now are thinking, there's no way. You don't know my story. You don't know the mess I made in my life the heartache I've caused, the damage I've done to myself and, and others. This is a pattern which is persistent, and I can't seem to move beyond the mistakes in my life which continue to control me. Do you really think Jesus can get me out of this mess? Brothers and sisters, no one in this age or in the age to come, on earth or in heaven, possesses the power found in God and His Son, Jesus, our Savior, our Messiah, no one. Now, we know this, but it's difficult to internalize. I mean, we can understand it theologically, but practically, oftentimes we can't see it. And yet His power, listen, His power has the ability to take that which is dead in us and bring it to life. 
This power has the ability to create something out of nothing. So do I think Jesus can get you out of this mess? Absolutely. And I'll promise you this. I, I will begin by asking, by seeking, by knocking on the door of God's throne room on your behalf to place his resurrected power in you to take that which is dead in you and bring it to life. And I will constantly and consistently beg the Father on your behalf. I will do that because I've had others do that for me. And this is the power of prayer. And I know others will delight in joining me on your behalf. This is what this family of God does. We pray. We've all been broken, just in different places. God is our Redeemer. And if you're listening at home and God is seeking, asking, and knocking on the door of your heart today, I urge you to call one of our shepherds. Call one of our ministers. Call a trusted and godly friend. And let us, with you, begin the process of asking, seeking, and knocking. We will be persistent. And we will pester God on your behalf. We will not give up on you. We will walk with you in love and in grace. I love you all. And I pray that God's resurrection power will fill you with new life. I leave you with this verse from Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the, is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. May God bless you, and may his grace and peace be upon you.